Hello. So when I was a kid, uh, we used to get a newspaper, and on Friday evenings, there would be a small mini magazine inside that newspaper, The TV Guide. Now, I understand this was before cable, B.C. <laughs> it was uh, before the web-based stuff. We would get three channels. Some of you remember this, you know, that we would get three channels if you adjusted the antenna correctly, uh, sometimes five, but nevertheless, we would get to watch. But back to the TV guide, the, you'd go to this little thing, and it was always a, usually it was a color cover, and everything else inside was black and white, giving a description of each uh, show that was going to be on, when it was going to be on, and there would also be black and white pictures uh, throughout, you know, different pictures of the different things. And I loved it because as a little kid, it, it just gave me just my gift of administration, which is nothing. But that, that, just this whole idea of, of really knowing when things are going to happen so I could see when Lost in Space was going to happen and when Batman was going to show and so on. All of those neat, neat, neat things that as a kid I enjoyed. At the end of the week, I would then be allowed, I couldn't do it during the week for obvious reasons, but at the end of the week, I could take that TV guide and my favorite programs and my favorite pictures, I would cut them out and take that old uh, little jar of paste that you used to get, you know, that had the little swabby thing inside and it, and, and I, I would cut out the pictures and I'd paste them in my scrapbook and I still have that scrapbook. Uh, I, we moved not long ago, so it's in a box somewhere. Otherwise, I'd have brought it and shown you because it's very precious to me. <laughs> but it, it really shows everything I ever liked about TV was in that scrapbook. And now it wasn't all the TV, but it was everything I liked about the TV. And the reason why I just start with that is I'm just thinking about this book called Romans that we've been working through for a long, long time now. And we'll continue to work through. And it has just revealed to us a plethora of the realities of God. Not just the attitudes of God, but also great doctrinal themes have gone through this. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. But I will have to say that just as somewhat of a human nature, that sometimes we can look at this big book called Romans and the things that we particularly understand, the, those little pictures that we understand, we cut them out and we paste them in our scrapbook called the TV Guide God scrapbook. The things we like about God. Some of those things we sang this morning uh, that are just wonderful themes about God. And, and we, we cut them out and we put them in our scrapbook. The ten, and then really when it comes out, we'll pull that scrapbook out and say, this is Everything I love about God. The thing is, is that after a while, if you're not reading and studying and being careful about what you're thinking here, we start to say, see this scrapbook here? This is God. Everything I like about is God. Everything I don't understand about God, well, that's up for discussion maybe. But probably not because after all, I'm pretty smart. And so I pick out the things about God that are most important, and, and he can have the rest. When we get into chapter 9 through 11 of this book called Romans, we're going to wade into some very, very deep themes 
that God reintroduces to us. It, it, is a, it is a historical Old Testament to New Testament reality, but we'll wade into these. And the reason why we, God would want us to wade into these is because he wants us to remember, I love your scrapbook, but I want you to know that there's volumes beyond your scrapbook that you don't have pasted, okay? Our God is enormous, I mean, we've been in our, recently in our small group just going through uh, some different studies about God, particularly in creation recently, and we saw just, you know, just how minuscule we are compared to the size of this universe of which the scriptures say that he holds the oceans in his hands. And I say, wow, what a huge God is that. But not only that, but he has also come down to earth and is in charge of the very cells and DNA of yours and my life. And, and he's put all of that together in and of himself. So this huge God that, again, in, in retrospect of, of size, my goodness how tiny we are, but then at the same time he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this world to become like us, God, and give his life for us that we could be with him. He loves us like that. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, you can almost wrap your, eye, your mind around that, but God's going to challenge you today, I believe, when we look at these scriptures because basically chapter 9 in itself talks about three different questions. The first one is, has God's word failed? And that's verse 6, verse 14. Is God unfair or is he unjust? And 19, how can God hold us responsible and blame us? And verse 19 is for another day, not today. We're going to try to take care of those first two. Has God's word failed and is God unfair? And, you know, it's, it's almost easy to say, well, no, no. Uh, but really, when you look at the context of it, you start to wonder. To begin with, you know, when we think of the history, chapters 9 through 11 has a lot to do with, again, dipping back in the Old Testament and bringing Israel to the forefront. God used Israel. They are his covenant people. They are the ones that he chose, not because they were amazing. In fact, they were not even a nation when he called the whole thing and got it going. But, but God uses them and, and has used them does use them, will use them. And so the context of the next three chapters really go along that theme, but uh, within it, we answer these couple questions, and with them, we find a amazing God. And so my message is not so much about Israel. Israel is being used as the example, but the reality and the star of the show of this is God. Now watch it happen because we need to think about the illustration. Israel. Are these questions legitimate? Well, interesting. When you think about Israel, the chosen people, boy, what a conundrum that is. Paul is speaking from the, the time and history of the Romans. The Roman times were not much different than our American philosophies and cultures. Technology at their level was huge. And uh, 
the, the things that they did, the entertainments that they had were very, very similar to our country in 2022. They were a people who, who just loved to have fun, whether it was righteous or not, and mostly not. Uh, they would do all of these things. Israel was in the middle of all of this. As a matter of fact, and you may have heard it last week as we opened up chapter 9, Paul saying, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Well, why would he put that there except for the fact that most of Israel was not? They weren't following him. So how in the world is this whole model, this whole plan that God put together, it's not working, God your chosen people are not following you. And even when we come into our day, Susan and I had the opportunity to live in the Middle East for seven years. And in those seven-year time, yes, our, our heart's desire and prayer to God for our Israel is that they might come to understand who Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, is. Ten years ago, the statistic was this, that only one in 650 people would be a believer in Yeshua into Jesus and they would follow him. One in 650. We're not anywhere near that size here this morning, but just for the sake of understanding it all here, uh, can you imagine if we have one ticket to heaven this morning and uh, that's all. Only one of you gets it. This isn't Willy Wonka. <laughs> you know, uh, we're dealing with an issue here for eternity's sake. And it wasn't happening. And so when we walk into this chapter, we find a hardened Israel, an Israel that was given everything. In fact, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9 says, they are the people of Israel. They're chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them, gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him. He gave them, he re, they received his wonderful promises Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. God promised to bless Israel. Abraham was told he'd be the father of this great nation, but here they are, hardened hearts. In Romans, even harder today. So, First question, did God's word fail? Is Israel a whoops? Lord, good idea, but it didn't work. And so we, we have this question laid before us, and, and folks, it's, it's a contemporary question. Has God's word failed? Because if God's word has failed, let's be skeptical. What part of it works and what part of it doesn't? And we enter into an age that we're quite uh, content to accept. In fact, it's true within, uh, it's a temptation all the time within lives is to enter this philosophy called relativism, which is more or less is just simply saying, I'll do the best I can. I have to figure it out on my own. 
And uh, after a while, basically what I believe is true is true. So my God scrapbook is true, and your God scrapbook probably isn't. And so we end up with all of this debacle of mess. And in the meantime, where is God? I'll, we'll find out where God is. Because has God's word failed in the process of using again the illustration of Israel? And the answer is in verse number six, no. I love it. No. I love the Greek. Uh, it means no. <laughs> Did you ever say that as a parent? You know, I said no, and that means no. And your kids just said, Dad, you're amazing. You know, I, you know, I just said no. It means no, not in any way, shape, form. No, no, no. It's that old referee. No, oh, that's safe. Sorry, that, that's the wrong. Uh, I can't remember no in referee terms. Anybody want to help me with that? There it is. There's one of them. You're out, man. You're just out. Uh, no. Has God's word failed? Has, has it, it, it had its, uh, its focuses, and even though they're not, they would appear not to be working, and we're all left to say, okay, Lord, we need to try to wrap our mind around this. We need to try to defend you. We need to try to counsel you just a little bit. We'll try to make this a better life for you, and so on, so that maybe your stuff can happen, your kingdom can come, and so on. No! God is in control. Now he's going to come back to this illustration of Israel uh, just to illustrate the whole thing. And, and it, you really have two matters coming through. You have God's plan and you have Israel's plan or the human plan as we watch it unveil. Basically, I'm just going to say it out right out, is that Israel had the mindset, the, the religious Israelite people, particularly New Testament era, they had this pretty much this idea, we are the chosen people. We got that from our pedigree. I mean, we are the children of Abraham. And, and then look at what we do. We keep the law. We've got all this stuff going on that everybody should look up to us because after all, we are the chosen. And so together, we are connected to the God of heaven. And yet their lives did not show that. And Jesus would quickly show them. In fact, Jesus showed them in John chapter 8, uh, first of all, that your bloodline is not a guarantee that you are the redeemed of God. It doesn't just simply come from the fact of your pedigree. We're Israel. Uh, we're Pharisee, we're this, we're that. And so he goes on and he starts talking about this physical descent, goes all the way back uh, talking about Abraham. They were talking about Abraham. Jesus had another mindset. John chapter 8 and verse 31, he said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The... the Pharisees wouldn't have that. They said, but we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you'll be set free? And I'm going to paraphrase or, or go a little quicker through the text. Verse 41, no, you are imitating your real father, they replied. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you are, Jesus said, no, you are imitating your real father. They replied, 
We aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Jesus would come back in verse 44 and say, you are the children of your father, the devil. Very complimentary, wouldn't you say? Mm. Verse 47 then said, Jesus said, anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. But you don't listen because you don't belong to God. Mm. You track back to Abraham, maybe in your pedigree, in your genealogy, and yet you have nothing to do with him. You're just all about the pride of who you are. Your security lasts, or rests right there. And by the way, folks, that's nowhere in Scripture that your pedigree gets you anywhere. I mean, here we are. They might have been saying, we are Israel, but we often say, we are American. Land of the free, home of the brave, and here we are, and God is smiling on us. We go by our race colors and we consider superiority there. We go by our political parties and we have superiority there. And we're all these privileged people. Check us out, God. Look at who we are. We can even get into our churches and talk about how our denomination or our... We, there is no assurance based on your pedigree that is going to get you to heaven. America, Christian nation. I'd like to think that, but the reality has to go one by one by one because there's none righteous, no, not one. When our pedigree starts to identify our identity, all of the truth that we could ever think of just blurs into that relativity. Check it out, it's very, very common. So God was working his plan, and in his plan, verse 7 through verse 13, it says uh, he uses, again, this illustration called Israel. Isaac uh, starts actually in the B portion of verse 7, for the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, and through Abraham, uh, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God, only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year. Sarah will have a son. Do you know the Abraham Sarah story? Abraham, you're going to be a great nation and I'm going to give you a son. Abraham goes, this is great. Well, it didn't happen because Sarah was barren. She could not have children. And so, even though they agreed with God that they would become this amazing nation, they decided to help God out because obviously what God was planning wasn't working. And so they decided to do their own thing. And as a result, bringing the handmaid of Sarah in, they had a son, they, and his name was Ishmael. Fourteen years later, Abraham is now 99 99 years old. Do we have any 99-year-olds this morning? Tom? Oh, yeah. Happy birthday. Oh, sorry. Tom's not here. Yes, he is. I see him now. You're not 99. No, I didn't think so. But soon. 99 years. Not the time to think about painting the nursery. Sarah's 89. And the next time they have intimacy together, something happens, which you would understand. And 
but what happened was not based on what they thought they could do, but on what God had said would take place. An 89-year-old conceived from a 99-year-old, and a baby was in the womb. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, but yes, I will. Because it's a supernatural miracle. God said, I'm going to give you a son. And they said, okay. And they tried to help it out themselves. And it didn't necessarily wasn't what God wanted. He didn't say anything at the time. But God used the impossible to complete his purposes. And so, all of a sudden, as God says to Abraham, Hey, Abraham, you're going to have a son still. And he smiles. And the scripture even says that, uh, and your, your wife's going to have this child. And the Bible says she laughed. Nine months later, they have a son, and they call his name Yitzhak. In your Bible, Isaac. That, that, that name comes from the Hebrew root, Sokek, which means Laughter. Isaac means laughter. Can you imagine? Here comes Sarah and Abraham carrying Isaac. What you got there? This is our son. His name is Isaac. (laughs) You don't think it's funny. Okay, we'll move on. Uh, God was saying it's not lineage, it's not about physical descent and so on, it's what I am going to do, and here's a child of promise. It's my job to fulfill my glory in my time, and I'll do it. It's not about your pedigree, my dear American friend. It's not. It's about what God has done for you. He moves on and he actually gives a second uh, story here using the next generation, which was Isaac. Mr. Laughter got married to Rebecca. Rebecca was barren 20 years. Isaac would pray and Rebecca would become pregnant. And the scripture says this son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebecca, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, that's an important phrase, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. And this message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. And in the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Or in some of your versions, I hated Esau. I I just want to spend most of my time. I will talk about the the love-hate thing a little bit, but the reality—it's—it's not the star of the show. Okay, we'll talk about it here in just a second. But the reality we're looking at here is these two kids were going to be born, but not on the basis of what they did, right? Because they weren't even born yet. And the prophecy came through to, or to Rebecca that said, this younger is going to serve the older. That's not normal. But God's line, his children of promise, 
were being defined, and first of all, it was going to be in God's time by God's people, and then the next generation is still going to be in God's time by God's people, regardless of what they do, which gives us just this whole idea that not only is our our relationship with God not about our pedigree, but it's also not about our resume. It's not about what you do. Scriptures say that many, many times. But I would just invite you to look at just a couple of words. The first one I would find in verse 12, a word we've already seen and rejoiced at, and that is the word called. Came from Romans 8, 28. That's another place where we see it. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We have been called into this process whereby God is glorified through us. Not everything is good, I remember Pastor Sid saying. Not everything is good, but all things work together for good. Because we have been called into this relationship. We who are Christ followers, we who have believed what Jesus has done, we have been called into this process, which is the second uh, word, the word purpose, which actually precedes it in verse 11. And that word really is that word of an intentional displaying of a plan that was set before. It was set before. So God called us according to something that he had already planned to do. And in God's mind, folks, here we are, Mr. Big God, plan A, and there is no plan B. I have a plan, and it's for you, and it's for the world, and I will get my plan done. Okay? Has God's word failed? No. If there's wars, has God's word failed? If you're having issues in your life, has God's word failed? If Israel is what Israel is today, has God's word failed? The answer is no, no, by all means, no. God's plan is marching on. His people were a people, they are a people, but they only exist exclusively, not by what they do, not by who they are, but by faith and by the work of God. Does that bother you? How about personally? Maybe you're fine with Israel, and maybe you even might cut that little picture out and stick it in your My God is scrapbook. But what happens when it hits you first and foremost? Does that bother you? Is that really fair? I mean, you love Jacob, you hated Esau. What in the world? Are you being just? Are you being fair? Natural question to ask after we've had this idea. What does that mean? Verse, let's look at it. Verse 14 says, are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. Same word, no. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say, and here's another example, God told Pharaoh, I've appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you. Remember that story? And to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so that they refuse to listen. Wow, this is hefty stuff. The whole idea of hate or reject really, when we look at this idea, was is that God was going to accept Jacob, accept, probably not the best word. He was going to 
lay his covenantal blessing upon Jacob. Esau's and his seed, he chose not to lay his covenantal blessing on. So that is, again, this is an illustration of Israel, so that this is the God's promise, this is man's idea, and it isn't going to be the same plan A, and there is no plan B. Is he fair? God said, I'll show mercy to anyone I choose, and I'll show compassion on anyone I choose. When we hear, and, and many of us, again, in our scrapbook, maybe even on the very first page, if not the cover, a lot of our God's scrapbooks, when we look at it, the first thing we love about our scrapbook is we say, God is a loving God. And we go, yes, and then they sing songs about it. And we raise our hands because we're in full agreement because we get that, you know. Uh, I, God loves me, and for God so loved the world. And listen, it's true. God loves the world. God loves you. God loves me. I love that. And I'm thankful for that. But when we look at this, about fairness, about justice, we need to understand something. God is love, but the inverse is not true. Love is not God. Now, that might sound a little strange to you, but this is, hear me out. This is what I'm trying to say. God is love, but there's so much more to know about God than love. The immensity of our God, we talked about his size when we started today, but along with his size also comes the abilities and amazing realities about God. They're called his attributes. And listen, our God is not a schizophrenic God. He doesn't just, oh, you know what, today I think I'm just going to be a loving God. And tomorrow I'll think about my other attributes. He's not like you and me. A little prophecy for you. Tomorrow's Monday morning. I know it's brilliant. But a, n a number of us are here today, and what a we came, Brian and the team are going to sing, and Dave's going to preach. Wish it was Sid. That's okay. You know. I wish it was Sid, too. I wish he was the one up here talking about this stuff. But none of, nevertheless, you know, uh, it's great. And then tomorrow, 8 o'clock, maybe 7, a lot of you are going to get to go to work. And, and there's five days of it with overtime that you didn't know about. <laughs> right? Oh, uh, no. We're schizophrenic, aren't we? <laughs> you know, we decide today we come and woo, this is great, and tomorrow we can choose our attitude for tomorrow. That's sort of a human thing. God doesn't work on that same way. God is always in all of his attributes at all times, making all of his decisions and all of his prophecies, everything together, of which includes God is love. Let me just rehearse a few of them with you. I think I have time. Um, but... Uh, when we think about this, you know, it's so much, you need to think so much more about God than just one thing. He operates out of his fullness. He's spirit. God is spirit. That's one of his attributes. Being spirit, he places 
Those who would trust in Jesus Christ, he places the reality of the presence of Christ right into our bodies. And so when I was young, I remember that day and I remember the phrase, I asked Jesus into my heart and he came in. Revelation 5 tells us that, that, that he, he knocks on our doors. He desires to be our Savior. And when we say yes and we open the door, he comes in and he fellowships with us. And how I know that's true is the story that I heard not long ago of the little child laying on mama's uh, lap. And, and, and basically as she was there, she heard mama's tummy growling. And she said, Jesus is with you, and he's making coffee. You know, uh, uh, so that's why I know it's true. No, I know more than that. Just the reality, though, is that as spirit, he comes and he's with us, and that's an attribute. Nobody else can do that. That is God working in and around us. He's omnipresent, which means we prayed today for Ukraine. And you know what happened? Do you know, do you know what happened when Brian was praying this morning? The presence of God was hearing that prayer, and he is in Ukraine. Hallelujah. Because you know what also is happening? You may not know this, but there's a Ukrainian believer that's praying for you. You say, oh, no, they don't have time to pray. They're, they're all sad and so on, and it's all about us because it's our pedigree. We're praying for them. They're praying for you in their persecution and in their suffering. That you would hear today, you would be blessed, and that you would live a godly life. And guess where God is? He's right here. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Man, all powerful. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. And even beyond that, he spoke this universe into existence. Again, we've been thinking about the speed of light as God said, let there be light in it at 186,000 miles per second. Light shot out of his mouth. That's pretty ferocious. And made our universe. God is omnipotent. God is holy. God never does anything wrong, John. Jonathan, he never does. He is pristine in every thought, word, and action that he does. God is life. Aren't you glad? Coming from God is, is just the spring of life that just flows abundantly and eternally. God is love. And there's so much to say about that. But the one I really want to get to is God is omnipotent. I can't say it. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Past, present, and future. He knows it all. He is, he is a real know-it-all. And he can have an ego trip, and it's okay. Because he's all that. Now, now, before I go any further, I want you to realize that just those few things, and there are more, but just those few things, when God operates, he operates in his fullness. All of these are coming forward. So when you hear, he loved Jacob and refused Esau, 
All of these things were working together. And one of the things that comes to the top is this whole idea of omniscience. Omniscience. Esau, he knew Esau. He knew all about Esau. He knew what humankind would never know about Esau when when Esau was in the womb, the cute little baby. He knew that Esau would be an immoral man by his choice. He knew that Esau would grow up and have no heart toward God whatsoever, that literally even though he did some good things along the way, he knew that he would have no heart for him. He knew that from Esau would come a tribe called the Edomites. The Edomites were one of the greatest thorns in Israelites' history. They made a mess. They were so tempting and they were so evil. God knew all of this. Okay, hold on to that. So, Because maybe that helps you a little bit to tip the scales a little bit on verse 13 that said... I loved Jacob, and I rejected Esau. Well, look how bad he was. But remember now, I said, it's not based on what you do, but nevertheless, we kind of get that because we're human, and we understand. Let's talk about Jacob for a minute. Guess what? God knew all about Jacob, too. He knew things about Jacob that had not yet happened but would. He knew that Jacob would be a conniver. He was a rascal. He knew that he would lie and, and, and that his lies would affect so many people. He was a ruthless deceiver. He knew that Jacob would wrestle with him, not for sport, but negatively, against God. Wrestle. I want to get away from you. He knew all of these things, and yet here we have him showing mercy to Jacob and compassion or pity to Esau. Here sits the mystery. In all the choices it seems that God made, knowing all of our hearts, nobody deserves the mercy of God. (laughs) Esau didn't. Mm -mm. Jacob didn't. Mm -mm. They didn't deserve it, not even one. And here we're trying to figure God out, and I don't know if, I, I can't, thoroughly explain it all to you because we won't figure God out. God is sovereign, my dear friends. And sovereign simply means that he is getting his work done. He acts in every fiber of his attributes 100% of the time. He's an enormous, overwhelming, not like you, not like me, God, not like your scrapbook. He is more and more and more. And how could God have ever loved us to start with? How in the world? Who are we? Are we like Israel? Are we privileged people here in this nation? I'm going to say yes, I think we are. We are, we are people of the Bible. We have the Bible. We have it all. We, we get to read it. We get to read it every Sunday. And then, by the way, I hope you're doing this, but we get to read it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as well. We get to live by this word. We get to, to learn it, to memorize it, and all of these things. We're also, another th- reason how I believe we're privileged is we're on this side of the cross. I'm really thankful to be, to be able to celebrate my Christmas and my Easter, not because of, of, of family times, or although I may enjoy that kind of thing, but you know what I really love is that my Savior came, and he was crucified, and he rose again. 
and he's given me eternal life. I'm thankful I'm on this side, and I believe that that's a privilege. Another reason why I believe I'm privileged is because after I trusted him as my Savior, I received the Holy Spirit of God. He's making coffee right now. And, and you know, I'm thankful for that because I get coffee every day. He rumbles in my soul. He shares in my life. He brings things to us. I, I love being married to my wife, and we're going down the road, and she says, I've been thinking. Well, yes, she has been thinking, but it's in harmony with the Spirit that's been speaking with her. And I've grown because of her, but I've grown because of God. And vice versa. We get the chance to commune with God one-on-one -on -one, all the time. Even when we're sleeping, he's there. My word. What a God. I'm privileged. You are too, if you know him. I, we have technology. We have research. We have more books than we ever had about God. You know the weird part of all this that I'm talking about? As privileged as we are. We still tend to revert back to those Pharisees who talked about, I'm just really thankful for my pedigree. Hey, have you seen what I've done? I mean, I'm a member of every single society that ever existed in Leesburg. I've got it all, man. You should see my attendance record at church. No, they don't take it anymore, but I tell you what, I got technology, I got me an iPad, and you can see right here, I check it every time. I'm in church. Good for you. It isn't about that. Our big God, our big God, in the midst of his enormity, says, I have a people of promise. I showed it to you that it's not everybody who just thinks they are because they're this or that or the other thing or what they do and what they don't do. But it's because they've come by way of plan A. They've come by way of my enormous reality of who I am. Not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done. I want to finish. I want to ask you this morning to lay aside your pedigree. I want you to search your heart. Are you one of those folks that just say, well, you ought to see me? Are you boasting? Are you prideful? Put it aside. Maybe your resume. No. Put it aside. Lay it aside. Read with me. Read with me. Let your ears be sanctified. Let your mouth be sanctified. Read with me right out of the Bible this amazing passage of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Here we go. Verse 2, actually. No, let's, let's begin with verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You're welcome to read with me. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. 
But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are anointed with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he does for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's not about your descent. It has really nothing to do about your good or your bad works. Folks, if God was going to be fair, there would be no one ticket. There'd be no tickets. If he was going to be fair, he'd leave every one of us in our, in our sin. It's God's mercy that saved us. In other words, his grace. Hey, you really don't want mercy. You don't, you don't really want fair. We want mercy. Cry out for mercy. Not fair, God. Mercy. We don't cry out for justice. We cry for mercy. Oh, God, give us mercy. And just like God called the Old Testament characters to his purpose, he's calling you. He calls you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he sent. That you too may rejoice in the mercy and grace of God. Not because of what you, I think I read that. You can't take credit. You're not a believer today if you are one because you're American or any other nationality for that matter. You are a child of God because he saved you by his mercy. If you're not, guess what he's doing right now? He's calling you. The mercy of Christ is saying, come on. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me and you'll find that I am meek and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls because that yoke is easy and that burden is light. Why? Because I've taken care of it all. My plan A works. Stop trying the relativistic way. I promise you it won't work but his will.